to take you on my personal journey of how I wound up as a missionary. And not because my story is special, but actually because I don't think my story is special is what brings, makes it um, maybe, thank you so much. Um, but before I do that, those of you who were in the first service, you just have to endure this again. Uh, I want to introduce you to my family. Yay! So, yay, yeah, there we are. And we look exactly the same now as we did then. Um, this was like 1995. So, uh, still a few years ago. This was our second, we print these little cards up to ask people to pray for us. We call them prayer cards. Um, so it's kind of a, a non-interesting uh, name for calling prayer card, something you want to give people to pray for you. Yeah. So um, uh, we actually had one before this, but we didn't have any kids. And so uh, we definitely are cuter in this one uh, because of those two little ones. Uh, so that's our daughter, Noor. And uh, you'll see a picture of her in a moment in a more grown-up state. And our son, Habib. And that's my wife, Amy. You can show that next slide. She is an amazing lady. I love this woman more than my life. Uh, she really is uh, just an incredible woman. Uh, she leads our organization in its efforts to keep our missionaries safe on the ground and in the event that a crisis happens, she leads our entire organization with about 2,700 missionaries around the world. She leads our crisis response. And crisis response is everything from a missionary getting kidnapped, which doesn't happen often, but it has happened. When you do hard things in tough places, occasionally something bad happens. And so as a, as a person going to share the gospel, we should be willing to endure any risk. The flip side of that, as an organization that sends people, we should do everything we can to help our missionaries. Yes. So, you know, they aren't cannon fodder. They're actually people made in God's image. And so we want to keep them as safe and protected as we can. So we keep both of those in balance. So Amy on one side is training our missionaries on how to be safe. And then she's leading the efforts in the event of a crisis, uh, which, like I said, is everything from kidnapping to actually even things like the coronavirus response. So she helped our leadership in China tailor its response on whether or not we sent our missionaries back to China after that. And so anyway, you get it. She's a, she's way, I, you know, I out, if this means anything to you who, who are football fans, I way out punted my coverage. <laughs> uh, so she's an amazing lady. Uh, and she is a great mother and, um, uh, wife, um, uh, I did tell people in the first service that uh, this captures her personality, so that's why it's worth repeating. Um, we were at a Christmas party a few months ago, and we were going around the room, and they were asking people, you know, to 
do these like, tell us two things nobody knows about you. And I absolutely despise those kinds of icebreakers. You know, I want to shoot somebody when they do those things. Um, and, um, but they got around to my wife who looks like, you know, Miss Betty Homemaker here in the picture. And, uh, and they get around to her and she looks at them and just, it's a very conservative group. You have to keep that in mind. So they get around to her and she just looks at them and she goes, I have a very big tattoo and I carry a gun. <laughs> and they were just like, <laughs> then they asked me my two things and I said I like women who have tattoos and carry guns <laughs> so, you know um, then I did clarify I like this woman that carries a, you know has a tattoo for so I want to make sure that's not you know not like going out generically looking for women who have tattoos and guns um, so then we have four amazing kids there they are um, and to a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law. So on the far right is our daughter and her husband. Uh, his name is Bass. Her name is Noor. Noor is the Arabic word for light. Jesus is called Noor al-Alam, the light of the world. And um, so she actually teaches at the International School in Alexandria, Egypt. She teaches at the same school that she went to kindergarten at, which is pretty cool. Um, you might be able to tell by the picture or at least suspect her husband Bass is actually Egyptian. And so um, we're very glad to have uh, him as part of our family. Uh, we love him very much. And uh, then we have three boys. Our oldest boy is Habib, uh, which is the Arabic word for the one I love. Uh, might give my other kids a complex, um, but um, he's a great young man. You can tell by looking at him that he is quite the conformist. Yeah, not so much. Uh, he's a musician. Um, he's very gifted writer, uh, and so he is—he's uh, a real joy. We just really love him, and that's his wife, Jennifer. She is a licensed family therapist. And so uh, they're a great couple. We They live in Springfield where we happen to be living right this moment. And so it's nice to have them nearby. As missionaries, uh, we don't always get that privilege. And so we're glad when we do. Uh, then we have our middle son, Nabil, who is a senior in university in, at a private university in Florida. Uh, Nabil is the Arabic word for noble, a person of noble character. And um, uh, he's just a great young man. We, we jokingly say Nabil is the kid who is most, like you, most likely to make you, to most likely to cry with you or to hit you in the face. Because whatever he feels, he feels deeply, especially Liverpool football. Oh, man, I think I just hit a raw nerve here. <laughs> You know, meaning, of course, football, the sport you actually play with your foot, um, as opposed to American football, which you, you know. So, um, <laughs> uh, so he and my my son, others, my son-in-law, they love that together because if you happen to be a Premier League fan, you know there is this famous football player by the name of Mohamed Salah, and he's Egyptian. 
And in, e in Egypt, there is like Mohammed Saleh, then the president of the country. <laughs> uh, and so um, Nabil is a great young man. He graduates in December. He's a business major. Uh, and he says, I think it's a very valid statement. He says, I feel called to make a ton of money and to do good with it. Yeah. John Wesley said that as Christians, we should make all we can, save all we can, and give all we can. And I think that's a great way to live your life. And uh, I told Nabil, same thing I'll tell you, two things you should remember if God does give you the ability to have wealth. Uh, those two things are, first of all, God can trust more people with poverty than he can trust with wealth. <laughs> because poverty eliminates choices and wealth creates them. And so keep that in mind. And the second thing is my account number, 2485522. He says, I got you there. <laughs> Then we have our youngest. He is, his name is Imad. He's actually a sophomore here at Mizzou. And uh, I wish he was in this room, but he's not because he's not a Jesus follower. And he's actually very, very, very far away from Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, or I'm summarizing Lewis, which is always dangerous, uh, but he said that humans look for religious systems that validate their moral choices. And that's exactly what Imad has done. And so, but just as God sent us uh, thousands of miles away for the majority of our adult lives to reach Muslims, we believe that the same God who sent us to find, fight for, and feed the lost sheep of Abraham is doing the same thing for our son here on the Mizzou campus. And um, our prayer is that at some point in the hopefully near future that God will awaken that God consciousness inside of him. Amen. Amen. Uh, by the way, Imad, uh, anybody in here an architecture major or any other kind of engineering major? Okay. Um, the... Um, Imad is a, actually like an engineering term, and it, it, it's a poetic. It, it's hard. Arabic's the only language I know of where engineering and poetry can somehow merge. Um, and because there's an Arabic proverb that says, without the Imad, the tent will fall. You think about a Bedouin tent that has this major column in the middle that holds up the entire tent. That pole is called the Imad. So um, we prayed that Imad would grow into being that. He would be the pillar in the house of God. Yeah. So then, um, go to that next slide. <clears throat> he left a few months, he left a year and a half ago to come here. And at that moment, we became empty nesters. No kids at home, all four grown and gone. So we decided to adopt. Yeah. There we go. That's our newest adopted child. And uh, her name is Zara, and she brings us a lot of joy. We lived in the Muslim world for 27 years, and you can't have a dog in the Muslim world. They don't like dogs. 
And the whole idea of pet ownership is a bizarre concept to them. And I will be honest and tell you, the, the American adopt way of doing pets is kind of bizarre to me, honestly, because, you know, I kind of think you have children and then you have dogs. We get that out of whack a little bit in America sometimes. But anyway, uh, you get the point. But she does bring us joy. And so we're happy for that. All right. So I want to take you on a journey. Um, you can turn the slide off now. Actually, if you would put up the slide, the first slide of the map, and just, you could just leave it up there. Thank you. I graduated from high school, went to, was not an, was not a Christ follower, um, had went to a local community college. I went for a half a semester and I dropped out. I said, I don't care about any of this. I had a very strong work ethic from my family growing up, um, but I had no interest in academics whatsoever. To be honest, I graduated from high school and I had never read a book from cover to cover. When God saved my soul, he also saved my mind. <laughs> Amen. Because he calls us to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I have multiple graduate degrees now, and I read over 100 books a year. Uh, and that isn't, I'm not bragging, that's part of my worshiping God with my mind. And at the end of my talk tonight, I'm going to unpack what that, why that's so important. Um, the fact that God told us to do it ought to be important enough, but <laughs> the practical side of that. So um, I was 24, I was 22 when I came to Christ. I am always hesitant to use that terminology because I don't believe any of us come to God without what theologians call God's provenient grace, mm -hmm. meaning he is drawing us to himself before, or we would not even be able to respond mm -hmm. to him. Salvation is theocentric, not anthropocentric. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. It's God's action that brings us to himself. But at 22, I responded to God's work in my life and yielded to that. Um, within a couple of years, I actually started feeling like God was calling me into ministry. I was in a church context. I didn't know anything about missions. I was never exposed to missionaries. So when I felt like God was calling me to into missions, or when I felt like God was calling me into ministry, the only context, the only paradigm I had for that was to serve as a pastor. I had admiration for pastors. I liked the church. So I didn't see any problems with that. I ended up going to uh, a Christian college to prepare for ministry. Um, while I was there, I was, um, I had a weird, I didn't do the traditional, I squeezed it into a shorter period of time. So I'm not sure where I was at in my college 
career, but somebody came up to me one day and said, hey, you know, we have this missions conference here on our school campus. Would you be interested in directing it next year? And my response to them was, why are you asking me to do this? I'm not a missions major. I'm not going to be a missionary. You know, I'm a pastoral major. Why are you asking me to do this? And their response was a good one. They said, well, we believe that everybody has a role to play in missions. You know, it's not that point, you know, that 1% of people go and everybody else gets to get out of jail free card. Yeah, because that's how, let's be honest, that's how most people view, I didn't get called to, you know, you know, they go to the World Mission Summit and it's like, they got through the last service without feeling like God called them to be a missionary, you know. Woo-wee, yeah. You know, I get to be part of the student awakening and stay in America, you know. Yeah. It's a win um, because we have this Jonah complex. We somehow think that God's call on our lives is to do something that we would hate. What a twisted theology. What a distortion of the God who made us and gave us the gifts that we are, we have and know who we are and wants the best for us. Now, of course, understanding that best doesn't mean easy. You know, I've actually never discovered anything in my life that was significant that was easy. And if it's easy, it's probably not significant. But so I'm asked to do this thing. I'm, I say, OK, now I will be perfectly honest with you and tell you I am absolutely positive. My motives for saying yes were not the best motives. And I am so glad that God is so much bigger than that. So I said, yes, because I am a hard worker and I feel like if you're going to do something, you ought to do it with excellence. Uh, I started trying to learn about missions because I felt like if you're going to direct a missions conference, you probably ought to know something about missions. So in addition to my schoolwork, I'm studying, I'm reading in my spare time about missions. And for the first time in my life, I'm reading about all these Buddhists that are out there and all these Hindus that are out there and all these Muslims that are out there and all these secularized peoples that are out there. And I'm learning about geography called the 1040 window, you know, where 98% of the world's unreached peoples, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, but... 98% of the world's unreached people live in this geographic block to which we send 2% of our missionaries. Now, I don't know about you, but that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, because I have this like, my mind naturally goes toward business. I honestly believe this. If I saw visions or heard God's voice audibly, I think I would doubt it. It's just my natural bent. I'm very bent toward the rational. And I think God understands who I am. I mean, we're made in God's image. Of course, that image is somehow flawed through sin, but God still works through our personalities. He doesn't work around them. And so God drove me crazy with a spreadsheet and a map. (laughs) I feel like I have part of my call is based on, you know, Excel. (laughs) 
you know, because I saw these people groups that had never had access to the gospel. And it didn't make sense to me. I mean, I know this analogy is going to break down at some level, so don't take it to its farthest extreme. But for me, the way God made it simple was if you were a business person and you were going to start a business, would you want to start your business in a location where there are a hundred businesses just like yours? Or would you want to go and start your business in a location where there's no business like yours, where there might actually be a market? Now, from a, like I said, that breaks down at some degree. You don't want to push that to the extreme. But from my understanding, I, that was sort of a germination of a thought in my mind of maybe God doesn't want me planting a church or pastoring a church in a place where the gospel is so present. Yeah. Maybe he actually wants me opening a spiritual restaurant in a place where people are hungry. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that developed yet, but that was the germination of an idea. Two other things are happening at the same time. So I'm reading all the stuff about missions and the world spiritual demographics, learning about these people called unreached people groups. An unreached people group isn't, to say we're using unreached in a technical sense, not in a broad sense. And we don't just mean lost. We mean lost, but without access to the gospel. So we're saying less than 2% evangelical Christian because 2% tends to be the point at which The church has enough inertia to be able to evangelize and transform its own society through the work of local people. So less than that, you don't have enough critical mass to keep the church going at 2%. In most contexts, that's enough so that the local body of Christ can evangelize its own people and actually do it better and in a way that more accurately reflects the local culture. And that's what we want because we don't go to plant American churches. We go to plant the church and the way you do that is by the raising up of local people. So I'm learning about all that on one side. So I'm learning about people, you know, like these unreached people groups and all these other, you know, missiological terms. That's all great. I nothing against that. I one of my degrees is in intercultural, one of my graduate degrees is in intercultural studies. So I'm all about that kind of stuff. But that informs our perspective. Hopefully, the word of God actually forms our perspective. I think it's important that we keep both of those in perspective. If we if we are Bible only and we ignore everything else, we become these rigid 
Bible thumpers that live in a distorted reality. You know, we become like that guy a few years ago who was going to burn a Quran in Florida. Do you remember that? I don't know if anyway, you know, that's just stupid, you know, at a lot of different levels. But, you know, we don't want to become that sort of rigidity. We want to, we all understand that all truth is God's truth. But we also don't want to become on the opposite end where we're putting so much emphasis in the social sciences that we're, we're, we're not honoring God's word. So we want to make sure that what the approach we're taking is Bible first with be, and then our worldview is informed by social sciences. And so, and having the humility to keep those in tension. All that to say, this all stuff over here that I'm learning is good, but I've also got to go back to God's word. And at the end of the day, the biggest question I had was, are the lost really lost? And when I say lost, I don't mean like the guy living across the hall from you. I mean like the guy who lives in a place where the gospel is absolutely absent. How lost are they? And I came to a very unpleasant realization. And that unpleasant realization was that I was a born again, spirit filled universalist. You know what a universalist is? A universalist is a person who believes that Hindus are okay and Buddhists are okay and Muslims are okay and Christians are okay. We're all going to heaven. Now, I would have never probably tried to defend that perspective from the Bible, but I was living as though that was the case because if that was the case, then I had no responsibility. That's good. And it wasn't good for me. It screwed my life up for a while because that's a major question that ought to rock every single one of us. And what happened is I went through God's word and said, what does this, what does the Bible actually say about this? Because at the end of the day, what I say about this is absolutely irrelevant. You will never stand before God. I mean, God's not going to be up there on judgment day going, Mark, what'd you say about that? (laughs) But we do give an account for what God's word says. Romans chapter one Paul says, you know, because let's back up for just a second. So we create these false constructs and they look like this. So what about the Hindu who lives in the Himalayas and has never had an opportunity to hear the gospel? Is God really going to send him to hell? Sound familiar? You ever thought that? Ever heard something like that? Of course you have. Wrong question. And it's not based on our our proper understanding of why the lost actually go to hell. The lost go to hell for the same reason that you and I were headed to hell. And that is because we are sinners. Not because we haven't heard of Jesus. We go to hell. I know this is unpopular. I get that. We go to hell because we deserve it. 
That's the saddest words I could possibly say. And I don't say it with any sense of bravado or I wish it wasn't the case for a lot of different reasons. Some of them incredibly personal. Romans chapter one, Paul says, Mark's paraphrase. So the Bedouin living in the Arabian Peninsula where there is no light pollution and there's very few clouds can look up into the sky on any given night and can see thousands of stars. It's breathtaking. And even though he has a God-shaped conscience, that when he looks up into the skies, instead of giving glory to God, he actually worships the creation instead of the creator. Psalmist put it this way, the heart of man is evil and always bent toward the wrong. So the person who has no access to scripture, the limited knowledge of the truth that he has, which is the conscience that God has given him, he violates that. He violates the truth that he does have. So it's not that he doesn't have a full understanding of the truth. He violates the limited truth that he does have. That's what Romans chapter one is all about. That's why those sad words, and it says they never, they didn't give God thanks, so God gave them over. And then he lists this long list of sinful behaviors but it wasn't the sinful behaviors that separated them from God. It was the fact that they didn't give God glory and thanksgiving. Romans chapter two, don't worry, we're not going to spend this much time on each chapter, but Romans chapter two talks about those people who live within a context where scripture exists. In Romans two, Paul's talking about the Jews that have the Torah in our context today, we could say those who live in the Christianized world, that every time they look at somebody doing something that is wrong, something that is contrary to scripture, and we've all done it when we see somebody acting in an inappropriate way and we go, look at that person doing X, God says that we are, pointing the finger actually at ourselves, but because because we know that's wrong, we're actually showing that we violate our conscience and we violate God's law in the very areas that we are pointing out about somebody else. Mm-hmm. Romans chapter three, Paul like wraps it all up, ties a bow on top of it, but it's not a gift. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The Greek word used there is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. Um, Our definition of sin usually is actions-based. We think about the sins that we commit 
That's not how God actually views the issue of sin. Sin is to miss God's glory, God's perfection. Um, There was a Peanuts cartoon years ago in which Snoopy had shot an arrow into the side of a barn and then walked over and painted a target around where he shot to say he had hit a bullseye. That's about the approach that most of us take with our unrighteousness. We live in such a way and then we draw our own target around and say, look, I'm a good person. It's because we compare ourselves with other people. For years, we lived in Amman, Jordan, and my landlord lived on the bottom floor of our building. His name was Abu Faisal. Abu Faisal was one of the kindest, gentlest, most trustworthy men I ever knew. Um, He's a Muslim. Uh, Whenever I would travel, I would call Abu Faisal and say, Abu Faisal, you know, and I'd tell him I'm leaving, I'm going out of town. You know, I'm Habib, mother of Habib. That's what in the Arab world, how you refer to my wife. So I'd say, Um Habib is here with the kids. You know, I'm traveling. Would you watch over my family? And he would say, Allah Rasi, which means literally it means on my head. It's like, I swear, I promise they're safe with me. I'd say, sure, thank you. And so here's the issue. Abu Faisal is one of the most moral men I ever met in my life. Good man as long as you're comparing them to other men. But we don't compare ourselves to men. We compare ourselves to God. And the fact that we ask that question about where God, about the eternal destiny of people who are outside of Christ is really more of a reflection of how lightly we take the issue of sin. And why this is so important is because if we underestimate the value, the the cost, the egregious nature of our own sin, then we start look, we start categorizing sins in levels of, well, that's really offensive, and this is only so offensive, and then this is, you know, so like. You know, I know, okay, I know before I became a Christian, I was a sinner, but those people are terrorists. That's a different level of sin, right? Not in God's views. In God's view, the self-righteous is just as bad as the terrorist. Because we don't compare ourselves with people, we compare ourselves with God's perfect righteousness. That's why Paul could say, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Of course, we're also very, very thankful that Paul didn't wrap up Romans there. More importantly, we're glad Jesus didn't stop there. But the same God who says we're all guilty was willing to pay the price for our guilt. The story is told of a man who had climbed one of the mountains of Nepal and was talking to a Christ follower 
and they started talking about the gospel from high up on this hill. And the Nepalese man who was a Buddhist said, you know, there are many ways to God. He said, for instance, look down this mountain. You see over here, there's a trail that comes up this way to the top. And over here is a trail that comes up to the top. And over here is a trail that comes up to the top. And behind us, there are a couple of trails that come up to the top. It's like this with, you know, this is Hinduism and this is Buddhism and this is Christianity and this is Islam. They all come up to the top. And he said, I see your point. He said, however, what it seems that your approach is that everybody is trying to work their way up to God. The gospel is actually that God who started at the top of the mountain came down the mountain and met mankind at the bottom. And because of that, he could only actually take one trail. That the gospel is both universal, not universalistic, but universal in that it is for all and it is exclusive. So while it is for all, it actually requires belief. In Romans chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus, Paul, through the spirit of Christ, says it this way. Everyone who believes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you are in Christ, I hope in your heart something jumped inside of you because if you are in Christ, you are saved. There isn't a better thing that you can have to rejoice about than that. You are saved. But Paul does not end there. Because 10.13 says, but how do they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how do they hear without a preacher? And how do they preach unless they're sent? That's where Christ's provision meets our responsibility. So I had two things going on. I'm learning all about the world over here on this side, and I'm wrestling through the book of Romans in my private devotional time. Like not, you know, not doing the kind of reading of the Bible where we read into the text, but the kind that actually lets the text read into us. And this perfect storm happens. And... I'm sitting in the library one day reading this magazine that's no longer in production called World Christian. It's a missions magazine. And I'm looking through it. And there's, an, there's two, and a bunch of articles, of course, but there were two advertisements for an organization that did work in the Muslim world, still does, that I can see in my mind as though I saw them today. They were black ink, white letters, no pictures, no anything, just bold type. 
And one of them said 32,000 Muslims died and went to hell yesterday and you probably don't care. The other one said ignorance isn't bliss, it's hell. And I got in my car, I drove back to my apartment, I went inside and though my normal way of praying is to walk and pray to keep my mind focused that night as an act of submission I got down next to my bed and I volunteered because it did not make sense to me that at that time 800,000 today or 800 million in today's world, 1.4 billion Muslims live apart from adequate access to the gospel. And I realized God wanted me to do more than simply pray, though it started with prayer. He wanted me to do more than give, though he told me that where my heart, where my money is, is where my heart really is. So I was to give generously. But he also wanted me to go. And so I volunteered. And that was almost, that was 30, over 30 years ago. Because uh, Amy and I have been married for 30 years and we've done this our whole lives, our whole married life. people oftentimes wrestle with the issue of calling. So briefly, I want to unpack that for you. First of all, we all have a primary calling on our life. And that primary calling is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. If you are in Christ, you are called to that. So, you know, there isn't a... I'm called, I'm not. We're all called, <laughs> you know. So you may be called to the marketplace or you may be called to the Muslim world, but we're all called to some degree. And we're definitely all called to those, the great commandment and the great commission to make disciples of all nations. When we talk about a secondary calling, which may be in this sense, like maybe to the Muslim world, then I would define calling this way, where passion and equipping equal opportunity. So some people have a burden for, and I would hope actually that all Christians have a burden for the unreached. But just because you have a burden for the unreached doesn't mean you're actually equipped to reach them. To put it very simply, if you think Taco Bell is foreign food, you're probably not called to be a missionary. Because you may have to eat some odd things. Anybody ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot? Amazing. Yeah, she, she died a couple years ago. She's now with Jesus. Uh, but 
she used to, she was a famous missionary. Her husband was one of the five missionaries that were killed trying to take the gospel to the Aka Indians mm-hmm. in Ecuador. Elizabeth Elliot used to say that the missionaries song or prayer was where you lead me I will follow what you feed me I will swallow Um, she said the second verse to that was God I'll get it down if you'll keep it down (laughs) part of being a missionary is you eat different foods and you have to learn different languages you know I mean if you're like absolutely paralyzed at the idea of having to learn another language you're probably not called to be a missionary That doesn't mean you're anything less than a God-given child of God with a divine destiny. It just means it's not in missions because gifting has to meet passion in order for there actually to be a calling there. It's that practical. It's like, you know, if if you don't have a good voice, you aren't called to music ministry. (laughs) God doesn't work around common sense. So, one of the reasons we do the go for a year and pray about a lifetime is so that you can distinguish the difference between a burden and a calling. And we think if you go and you spend a year And at the end of that year, you did everything that was asked of you and you grew in your love for Jesus and you walk away and you go, this has been a great year. I absolutely know I am not called to do this. It was a good year. That's right. As long as you leave with a good heart, you weren't cantankerous on the team. You know, you didn't cause disunity or anything like that. You walked away and you said, from the rest of my life, I know I'm not called to be a missionary, but I'm going to give and I'm going to pray like I never have before. I said, when? But I do believe this. I mentioned in the first service, you know, that basically we figured out that somewhere between one and 2% of people are called to be missionaries. What we do know is that Less than 10, if less than 10, if less than 10, sorry, if 10% of the 1% was actually saying yes to God's calling, the unreached would already be reached. That's good. Because people basically, God's calling way more people than are going. So let me close by, I talked about the worshiping God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me give you a practical illustration of what that needs to look like to reach places in our world today that remain glory void. There's a people group in the northern part of Iraq called the Yazidis. Anybody ever heard of the Yazidis? In 2014, a little-known group known as ISIS swept out of northern Syria into northern Iraq and they came across a group of people called the Yazidis living in an area called Mount Sunjar. The Yazidis are not, though they are in the Middle East, they are not Muslims. They are actually Satan worshipers. 
They don't believe that Satan is good. They actually believe that Satan is very evil. They believe that God is good, but they are dualist. They believe that God and Satan are equal. They believe God is distant and good. Satan is imminent, close by, and evil. So they worship Satan to placate him, to keep themselves safe. Imagine a group that worships Satan as their theology. Imagine what ISIS thinks of them. So when ISIS sweeps across that section of northern Iraq and gets to the Yazidi people, they decide they are going to exterminate them. I mean, they don't, they're not even, I mean, they're advertising, we are going to commit genocide and erase the Yazidi people from the planet. The United Nations hears about this. They mobilize. I'm glad they did. Nothing wrong with that. Something very noble about it. They said, we're going to protect these people. The U.S. starts military action, providing aid and trying to, and dropping bombs and stuff like that to try to keep the ISIS people away from the Yazidis, other Entities, including the U.S., are dropping air support like food and blankets and all that kind of stuff into these people. It's high up mountains. It's cold area. They're dropping this stuff in trying to keep them safe and trying to keep them fed and everything while they're isolated. All of that's great and nothing against any of it. I think it's all noble. Here's my problem. It's 2014. Somewhere in the first 30 years of this century, or sorry, this AD, so roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus' last words to his disciples while he was on earth was, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus' words there, go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't mean all Americans and all Nigerians and all Syrians. The word used there is ta-ethne in Greek. You get where we get that word ethnic from. Jesus basically is saying to his disciples, go and make disciples of every unique ethno-linguistic people group. 2,000 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, the Yazidis remain glory void. We have no history of ever there being a missionary to the Yazidis not a single believer amongst them, and the scripture not available in their language. The UN nobly mobilized to take care of and protect the Yazidis. Jesus mobilized his church 2,000 years ago, and we have yet to do it. Now, reaching the Yazidis will not be easy. Um, To start with, just spiritually speaking, the spiritual dynamics will eat you 
for lunch if you go up, show up unprepared. But practically speaking, the Yazidis, like I mentioned, are their own ethno-linguistic people group, so they speak their own language. So you have to learn their language. There are no language schools that teach Yazidi, so you actually have to do it by living amongst them and, you know, learning with local tutors. And that means having a lot of humility because you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You know, I can remember trying to learn Arabic, which isn't exactly an easy language. And, you know, and try telling a guy sitting next to me on the plane that he needed to invite God into his dog. <laughs> because the word for air in Arabic for heart is kalb and the word for dog in Arabic is kalb. They sound pretty similar. So he looked at me and he went, I don't know a lot about Christian theology, but I don't think you mean that. <laughs> you're gonna have to learn you're gonna have to learn the Yazidi language. Here's the problem. The Yazidis are surrounded by the Kurds. So if you're actually going to work amongst the Yazidis to, to live and to function, you're also going to have to learn Kurdish. The Kurds are a Sunni people group who are also unreached. The Kurds of northern Iraq are surrounded by the greater Muslim community of Iraq who are Arab Iraqi Shiites who are also an unreached people group. And the to because Kurdistan is not an independent country, in order to live and function in Kurdistan, when you go to do your paperwork for your visas and all that stuff, you have to go to Iraqi government institutions, and there's a lot of stuff you have to do in Arabic, so you actually have to learn Arabic also. And the Shiite Muslims of Iraq are surrounded by the greater Arabic Sunni population of the Middle East, which is also an unreached people group. So you got the Yazidis surrounded by the Kurds, surrounded by the Shia, surrounded by the Sunni. You got an onion. <laughs> and in order to reach them, you're going to have to learn Yazidi and Kurdish and Arabic. And the truth is most Christians get to a place and say that's just too much. And that's why the Yazidi remain unreached. So maybe God is asking you to think about the spiritual state of the Yazidis and people like them. If you have an acumen for languages, it's not so that you can learn to order sushi in Japanese, though that would be pretty cool. Maybe it's because God wants to use that language aptitude that he gave you and hard work to learn the languages of those people groups that remain glory void.
it's really that practical where passion meets gifting and that meets opportunity. Sometimes people talk about closed doors, closed countries in the Muslim world. I've been doing this a long time. I'm not so worried about closed countries or closed doors. I'm worried about closed hearts. I've never met a door yet that God couldn't open. But I've met some hearts that I don't think God could pry open with a crowbar. And some of them sit in churches week after week after week or sit in Kai office. They say, God, I'll do anything for you except. We sing songs that use the word Lord and then think we can say no. Thank you for understanding the irony in that statement. If he is Lord, then the only appropriate response is yes. So tonight, we're done. But I do think the Lord wants to apply this to our lives. And so in closing, no music, no manipulation. Not, not that the music is manipulation. That's not what I mean. <laughs> uh, I actually love the arts. And I think there's something wonderful about how they prepare our hearts in so many ways. But in just a purely rational way, because God creates our heads also as well as our hearts. There's no dichotomy in God. So tonight, I just want us to close by praying. Each one of you individually making an altar. You don't have to get on your knees. You can if you want to. But to just ask God, is my heart in alignment with your heart for the nations? If not, what can I do to bring my heart in alignment? The first thing is an easy one. That's called repentance. Repentance is not a bad word. <laughs> repentance just means to turn, like to get on track. If you are lost, the best thing you can do is stop going in the wrong direction. <laughs> You know, you know, it's like the bumper sticker said, I'm lost, but I'm making great time. You know? Stop going in the wrong direction. And then after that, I'm going to ask that you do this. At some point in the next couple of days, go to a website called Joshua Project. Net. They track unreached people groups. Look for any people group. Because of my selfishness, I'm going to say any Muslim unreached people group. 
and spend at least five minutes praying for them and asking God, should I do something beyond prayer? Can you do that for me? It's not real hard. Can I pray for you? Father, I thank you for this uh, amazing group of students. There's so much potential in this room. Potential for Christ-exalting, God-glorifying action and potential for self-exalting, flesh-demonstrating behaviors. Those potentials are inside of me as well as them. Lord, I think of the young man who asked the wiser man, I feel like I have these two animals fighting inside of me. How do I know which one will win? The older man said, the one that you feed is the one that will win. Lord, may we live in such a way that we feed our spirit and not our flesh. May we live according to the spirit and therefore not fulfill the cravings of the flesh. May we live for the eternal and forsake the trivial. Lord, help us to develop a sensitivity to your voice. Lord, your word tells us that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Lord, you're a good shepherd and we're your sheep. Lord, give us ears that are sensitive to your voice and then give us willingness to obey whatever you say. And we will give you praise and honor for that. In Jesus' name.